0: A little less than uh, 10 years ago, two letters and a number became the talk of our nation. Everybody heard these three characters mentioned right right in a row, and many people were concerned about everything that that represented. You know what I'm talking about? Y2K. Two, two letters, Y and K, and a two there. It stands for the catastrophe that was going to happen when computers would be unable to make the transition from December 31st, 1999, to January 1st, 2000. And uh, in fact, I, I remember a, a friend of mine being so concerned about it that he uh, he handed me this folder, and I've, I've kept it since then. It says, "Can you read it? What does it say?" Y2K FYI, and um, so I've I've kept it over the years because it's for this time great illustrative material here what we're talking about and uh, in this he, he gave me some uh, some different different articles and things and um, one article is a big big printout it says is a big Y2K power grid blackout inevitable and uh, he just kind of discusses the big blackout that's going to happen Y2K a global ticking time bomb was was that one I think I missed one here yeah here it is preparing for the year 2000 1999 crash um i have one have one here i want to want to quote for you a little bit this guy is uh ed jordan I don't know if, he's a um mainframe computer programmer for 25 years, I think, something like that. And he says, I've often joked that I I expect New York to resemble Beirut, even if a subset of the Y2K infrastructure problems actually materialize. But it's really not a joke. It's likely to be fairly cold on New Year's weekend, and a combination of disruptions in utilities, telecommunications, banking, schools, hospitals, airports, unemployment checks, social security checks, food stamps, and or welfare checks would be enough to make the citizens of New York who normally only have to tolerate problems like subway strikes and embarrassingly incompetent baseball teams, extraordinarily grumpy. There's enough gunfire in the streets even in normal times. I'm not comfortable in exposing my families to the city's ill humor if Y2K turns out to be a serious problem. He was thinking about moving to New Mexico. I don't know if he did or not. Uh, here's, here's another one from um, a guy named um, Hamasaki, Corey Hamasaki. 500 days to go and he goes through all the stuff you know everything about you know the problem 500 days what's going to happen and things like that and he says this. he says know that i'm an optimist there's no reason to believe that we won't see a complete collapse of civilization anyone who says these things will be fine hasn't got a good sense of history or of current events um i've got a a catalog here let's see I got a catalog here entitled The Elijah Company maybe some of you are familiar with that they sell books and they did a bunch of research and they said um, although no one can accurately predict the effects of a widespread computer failure people who understand the Y2K problem and its potential impact foresee three possible scenarios scenario one brownout temporary interruptions in many services for up to several months picture something like the aftermath of Hurricane Hugo So that's option number one is brownout. Option scenario number two is blackout. Prolonged interruptions in many services for a period of years. Picture something like the Great Depression or global scale or or Germany at the end of World War II. Scenario number three is, okay, we've got brownout, blackout, now we've got wipeout. The collapse of civilization at the end of the world as we know it. Picture a total breakdown and restructuring of society. And uh, then this editorial says, We have analyzed reams of information about Y2K and have become convinced that disruptions are possible. We don't know which of the scenarios above will play itself out, but we believe you would be prudent to prepare for some disruption of your lifestyle. Conclusion? So buy our books. And this was taken out in the back cover of World Magazine on uh, August 29th, 1998. Now, the reason I have all these is because I was in charge of the Y2K program at a hospital. It's a computer perspective. We gathered all of our equipment. We gathered all of our software. We tested them. We were talking to utilities, saying, hey, you're going to have power. Talk to banks. Talk to Walmart. Because if Walmart has what you need, if they're up and running, you're okay. And because uh, you can't buy a Walmart, you don't need it. And um, so we did this, and I was, you know... I knew everything was going on and, and was pretty comfortable. Even I remember about six months before I talked to the church about everything is going to be a disaster and, and it was amazing how many people really continued to believe this. I was, I was accosted several times speaking about saying Y2K is not that going to be a big deal. People came up and really um, said, you're wrong, you're wrong. So anyway, but this is Newsweek. This is my most favorite. This is um, Michael Hyatt. Newsweek calls it the day the world shuts down in the event that could all but paralyze the planet. The Wall Street Journal calls it the, the most expensive accident of all time. Computer World says the problem is far worse than even the pessimists believe. There's no question there will be problems and no one knows for sure how bad they'll be. That's why you need to prepare now for the turmoil we'll likely face in the event of a simultaneous system failures and ripple effect of the year 2000 Y2K computer bug will bring. At the very least, you need to know how to keep your family warm without electricity. Don't forget, the crisis will begin in January. You need to know how to buy the necessities you need, even if the banks are closed or your accounts can't get access to your accounts. You need to provide the emergency protection and medical care for your family, even if 911 is constantly busy. You need to know how to feed your family, even if the grocery shelves are empty. You need to know how to have secure, clean, uncontaminated drinking water, even if your water treatment plant can't. You have very little influence over whether the federal government or private industry gets its computers fixed in time, but that does not mean that you have to become a victim. You can begin by preparing now to make sure that you and your family survives the coming chaos. To assist you, Y2K consumer advocate and best-selling author Michael Hyatt has prepared a two-part family information and protection resource, the Millennium Bug Personal Survivor Kit, everything you and your family must know to get from one side of the crisis to the other. In it, you'll find the essential information you need to get started. The complete package, six audio cassette tapes, Six audio cassette tapes. $79 sold separately. And the Y2K resource manual, right? Spiral bound. $79. Both are yours for $89 plus four ninety-five 4 shipping and handling. Savings of 50%. So get started now. The year 2000 crisis is approaching fast. You want to protect yourself and your family. It's crucial you don't get the... It's crucial you get the Millennium Bug Personal Survivor Kit as soon as possible. Don't delay. We take credit card... Checks payable for faster service, 1-800-Y2K-PREP. Remember, it's better to be safe than sorry. Well, Y2K, the problem that never happened. Had many people worried about it and had many people um, very concerned. But the ways of the people who predicted the catastrophe upon the earth... Weren't the way that things turned out, as we know. We can look back at those things and laugh, right? We can laugh like um, we did at my, my family's house. I um, had a sister who was really worried about it. And uh, I happened to be, had to be at the hospital at that time. But uh, the story goes that all of my siblings, my four sisters and their spouses and all the kids were all at our house and they're all watching TV. And, and, and my one sister's really nervous. And uh, so my brother takes off about 11.59 at night. He goes downstairs and, boom, hits the whole power over the whole house. And um, I wasn't there, but the testimony from my wife, Avon, you said, she went, oh! <laughs> We can look back and we can, we can laugh. It's a good illustration of how things that we might think will happen aren't really what happens. a good reminder that our ways aren't God's ways. As most of you know, we're in the midst of a topical sermon series this morning this summer entitled, Not Our Ways. It's been my aim to show you that the ways of God are, are, are possibly different than the ways you might be thinking. You might have this picture of God in your mind and His ways and think that, okay, you know, this is the way that God would be or this is the way that I would do it, and, and God does it a totally different way. My messages have been a call for you to trust in the Lord, even if you don't fully understand everything about the ways of God. Four weeks ago, we looked at the problem of evil. How is it that God, a good God, created a world in which evil is crucial to Him accomplishing His purposes? Three weeks ago, we looked at the issue of imputation, the process of declaring others guilty or innocent based upon the the righteousness or guilt of of a third party. Two weeks ago, we looked at how God provides salvation to men, but not to angels. Last week, we looked at the manner of the Messiah. When the Messiah came, He didn't come in grand glory like we would expect. Rather, He came in humility. And I've taken all, the idea of all four of these messages, examples, um, from a sermon written by Edward Payson called God's Ways Above Men's, which he preached in the early 1800s, copies of that sermon are on the back table. I encourage you to read them. At the heart of the sermon, Payson gives eight examples of how God's ways are not our ways. We've looked at the first four. Uh, I have four more weeks here with you before I take a two-week vacation, and so we're going to hit the last four um, in the next upcoming weeks. But here's what Edward Payson writes about the fifth example of how God's ways and thoughts are different than ours. He writes this, God's thoughts and ways differ widely from ours in His choice of means and instruments for propagating the religion of Christ. We should have thought that a religion whose author had been crucified as a malefactor, a religion which instead of favoring and flattering time, ruling passions, prejudices, propensities of men, directly opposed them all, and which was therefore exceedingly hateful to them, would have needed the assistance of angels or at least the most powerful monarchs, the most enlightened sages, and the most splendid natural and acquired abilities to procure its success. But instead of such instruments, which we should have chosen, God was saw fit to employ a handful of ignorant fishermen, To effect this purpose, and even forbade them to use any human artifices to procure them success, but charged them to rely entirely on the effect of faithful, simple, unadorned statement of the great truths of Christianity. Hence the language of the Apostle God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. And the base things of the world and the things that are despised has God chosen. Yea, and things that are not to bring to naught the things which are. So that no flesh should glory in His presence. For when in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. In other words, Patience is saying that the way in which the Messiah came... Like we looked upon last week, the man of the Messiah, the, the way he came humbly and died upon a, a cross, and our great leader was crucified is a difficult one to think to for people to grasp. I mean, you think about it. Rather than than the King of Glory coming in to be received by the children of men, rather the Jews who were his own rejected him and handed him over to the Gentiles so that they might kill this man they thought to be a false prophet, though he was God incarnate, and, and they not only Killed Him, but they killed Him with a cruel death upon a cross. One which the Romans saw so ignoble, they said, No Roman should ever be crucified. It was a right of being a Roman citizen. You'd never be crucified, and yet they crucified our Savior. It's a difficult message. The message is even more difficult when you say, Well, Jesus died upon the cross, and He calls you to take up your cross and follow Him. You're ready to do that it's a hard message <laughs> the likelihood that people receive it is small and so we would think that maybe we need someone great to come and spread the message throughout the land i mean isn't that how it works with advertising advertising agencies find a credible personality some some who knows athletic star or some movie hero or some other rich man, some well-known figure who's trusted, and that person becomes a spokesman for their product. And when that well-liked, well-trusted person promotes his product, it's sure to sell because people like the promoter. <laughs> In some ways, it doesn't even matter what the product is, right? You're, you're facing choices between Wheaties and cornflakes. Flakes. You say, hey, hey, Michael Jordan's on that. I'm going to take the Michael Jordan cereal, you know. Or some other great... Um, personality promotes the product hey if he promotes it boy, it must be good well with advertising so also we'd expect perhaps with the gospel our message really isn't that conducive after all a crucified leader doesn't sound too appealing to people so we might expect God to employ some angels to come and speak his message with great glory right pronouncing hey to the world here it is here believe in Jesus you know we're just whoa all struck by the The personality of this angel and say, Well, I'm going to believe that. We would have thought that. Or we'd have thought maybe some great king or some rich man propagate this news of sins forgiven in Christ. Follow him and you'll be like me, rich and wealthy. We had thought that was the way that God would do it. Or maybe we'd expect God to use the smartest and brightest of people in the university setting to get this message across that would be true. This guy's got four earned doctorates. He knows 17 languages. He's read all the religious literature, the Koran, the Book of Mormon, Mary Baker Eddy, the Scriptures, the Bhagavad Vita, or whatever that is, those Hindu things. He knows it all. And his conclusion? Christ is the only way. Follow Jesus, because it's the smartest guy in the world. He's following. That's how we might take, think that the best way to spread the message is. But in actuality, God doesn't do it that way. God uses normal, ordinary, weak, ugly, People, to spread the news. That's how God does it. It may not be our ways, but it's God's ways. We need to accept it and embrace it. Well, if you haven't done so, I invite you to open to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at much of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 this morning. My message is entitled, Not Our Ways, Spreading the Word. The way God spreads the Word is different than what we might expect my first point from verses 18 through 25 is that God uses a foolish looking message. God uses a foolish looking message. Let me read 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. God uses a foolish looking message. Now notice I didn't call the gospel today a foolish message message because it's not a foolish message verse 18 speaks about how it's a it's a powerful message and even in verse 21 speaks about how it's God's wisdom that brought this message the message itself is just foolish looking to people it appears foolish to many in the world in fact there are many on the outside of the church who look at us by the way as fools for believing these things and indeed, if they're right, as Paul said in First Corinthians chapter 15, we are foolish. Of all men, we are most to be pitied. And they're convinced that it's wrong, and therefore they look at us and say, those churches, those people are fools. In fact, that's what verse 18 says, right? The word of the cross is foolishness, you've got to finish the sentence, to those who are perishing, there are those who are perishing in their sins. They've sinned against the Holy God, will suffer for hell in eternity, and the message of hope comes to them, and they hear it, and they hear our sins forgiven in Christ. They hear this message how Jesus tells us to take up the cross and follow Him, and they don't want it. They reject it, they refuse its counsel. They prefer to go their own way and brave. Brave it on their own rather than trusting in a crucified Messiah. You know, and this is a basic reality for many who live today. They've heard the message of Jesus of, the, of Nazareth. They've heard how he lived a sinful life. They, they hear of how he died a painful, shameful death upon the cross. They, they hear about how he raised again from the dead. And they hear that the death upon the cross is for sinners so that whoever believes in that message might have their sins forgiven. But forgiveness only is only the starting point. right? You believe in Christ, you'll have eternal life. You'll be with God in heaven, enjoying His presence and His pleasures forever. And when people hear that, they say, nah, don't want it. In that case, they're perishing. And they perish because they consider the cross to be foolish. A few weeks ago, Phil Gusky invited me to join his office staff. Um... To attend a motivational seminar in the Allstate Arena, uh, just down the road down I-90, and um, he said he'd gotten some really cheap tickets to the event, and uh, where some real, pretty respectful people were speaking, people like Steve Forbes, presidential candidate, owner of Forbes magazine, uh, people like Colin Powell, were going to speak there, military general, former Secretary of State. Perhaps the most popular of all, Lovey Smith was going to be there. Hope you know who Lovey Smith is, right? For those of you visiting from Wisconsin, Lovey Smith is a famed coach here who people adore. Okay, just just checking. all right uh, Zig Ziglar, motivational speaker, would also be there. Several other guys I'd never heard before, and I figured it'd be interesting. I'd love to hear. I wanted to hear Lovey Smith. I wanted to hear Colin Powell, especially. I found Steve Forbes so very interesting. And some others I found interesting as well. But I, I thought it would be good. So I joined the staff in attending. The arena was crowded. About 10,000 people were there. It was an amazing event. 10,000 people there. A lot of, a lot of raw, a lot of things like that. And to my surprise, the entire event turned out to be an evangelistic outreach. I was shocked. And I, I think now I understand why the tickets were so cheap. Perhaps it was subsidized to get a lot of people there. Pull out the biggest and the brightest and the the, um, the best people, salespeople, you know, around the Chicagoland area to hear these big name speakers. Get fired up to be able to make all these sales calls and get you know turned down, turned down, turned down. Shortly before lunch, a guy named Peter Lowe presented the gospel. He spoke for probably half an hour went through a very adequate presentation of the Gospel. You know, there might be some subtle things I could criticize, but I was very satisfied with what he he's talked about. He talked about God being a holy, righteous God. He talked about our sin, right, keeping us from God, and how Christ bridges the gap, and how we need to believe and trust in Him, repent from our sins. And He gave opportunity for anyone who wanted to. 10,000 business people, secular event, like, like um, Paul on Mars Hill, gave them the opportunity to pray the sinner's prayer. I was shocked by his boldness, but I was praying, God... Bring the word strongly, bring it strongly, convict hearts of sinners. may the gospel come i don 't know the fruit of the message that he gave, but I did get one person's perspective you know it was fairly dark you know because everything was focused up upon the center stage and and uh, Phil and I were up in the second balcony where it was all dark and and I saw this guy playing with his handheld device you know and it's, i, I don 't know it was a blackberry or phone or something like that, and he's text messaging or sending some kind of email or something and and, and I kind of kind of happened to look at one point and he's emailing and all I got to see was like one sentence, two sentences, something like this. I'm here at the Allstate Arena at a motivational seminar. Some pretty cheesy things are going on. That's what he said. That was his words exactly. Some pretty cheesy things are going on. That's how many people view the gospel. Viewed as cheesy. Viewed as, <laughs> what's this? The guy had no interest. And the things of the Lord, I can tell. He called it cheesy. Those are the people who are perishing. Because the cross is foolishness to them. But in God's gracious dealings with men, there is another group of people. Those who hear the same message, and it comes differently to them. They don't find it foolishness. Rather, they find it powerful. They find it the power of God, as it says there in verse 18. And that's the testimony of many of us here this morning. We've come to embrace this message. We believed it. And and in our experience, right, the the Gospels worked powerfully in our lives. We've seen the power of, of sins forgiven and the joy that that gives to conquer some of the difficulties of life. We found it to be powerful. And there's a reason why God has chosen things this way. There's a reason why God has chosen some who are perishing and some who are being saved. And the reason why is this, is verse 19 through 21. It's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Right, here's the idea. There's many in this world who think themselves to be wise. There are many in this world who think that they've got everything figured out. And so God so decreed that when this message of the Gospel would come, it would defy even the smartest, wisest of people. It would be like a puzzle that they simply can't figure out. But in God's wisdom, it's not because it's so hard and sophisticated, it's because it's so simple that they refuse to believe it. That's what God has said. Where's the wise men? God's made foolish the wisdom of the world. twenty one. In the wisdom of God, this means that God planned it. That the world through its wisdom, though it tried to know God, did not come to know God. God had another plan. God destroys the great wisdom of men by giving a simple solution that they won't accept. It's a little bit like a game sometimes I play with my kids. My kids are uh, of that age that they like playing on playgrounds. And uh, particularly Hannah has been interested in saying, Dad, make me an obstacle course. And so, you know, I'm looking before this whole thing with swings and bars and monkey bars and steps and ladders and slides. And I say, okay, I don't know why I do this. I always say, okay, you're going to go from this slide here to this slide over here. And if you go across it, you can't use your left hand. You know, so she tries to go across it just like that. That's really fun. I say, well, you can't, you can only use one foot. You know, So she tries to hop through the thing. Or sometimes I, you know, it's colored different ways. And then sometimes I say, well, you can um, try to go from slide to slide without touching anything yellow. And I remember one time she did that. She was on this slide and she said, oh, Dad, that's easy. And I was looking across, there's lots of yellow things. I didn't think it was easy. And so she was on the slide and so she stepped on the slide. Then she steps off and she walks over this way, not on the place. And then steps on the slide and said, Dad, I did it. <laughs> what are you talking about? I didn't touch anything yellow. The wood chips are brown, Dad. And, and thereby, she had a solution that was so simple. I want to go the hard way. And that's how it is with people. And God says, okay, hey, look, look. To get from this light to that slide, you just walk along the wood chips and come and get to this light. No, no, it's going to be much more difficult. we got to go through this thing without touching yellow. You know, we got to try to climb through this. big. And they can't do it. But they they insist that they want to do things that way rather than the simple way which God has done. And in that way, God confounds the wisdom of the wise. That's what the wisdom of the gospel is about. We're placed on this earth with the incredibly difficult, (laughs) I say it, impossible task of fully knowing God, being right with Him. And someone comes along and says, Well, it's not really as difficult as you think. You're trying to navigate life. (laughs) Look at the cross. God came in the flesh, died upon the cross. Believe in Him. He'll transform your life. And they say, no, it can't be that easy. I can't have my sins forgiven by just this one man's actions. I've got to be doing something. I've got to work. I've got to be committed to this. I've got to do this. And we say, no, 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 it is. In God's kingdom, you just walk around Listen, if you had to get through the whole playground, you need to be really smart, first of all, to figure out which path to take. And then second of all, you have to be really strong in order to do that. And and that way, only the smartest, strongest people would be saved. But, But God has done it a different way. God has allowed anybody who walks to be saved. Upon hearing this, they still protest and they still say, Oh, that's too easy. And they try to do things their own ways. But God's ways are not our ways. And the result is they end up, verse 21 says, not knowing God. Now the reason why people reject the message is varied. We have two reasons here in verses 22 and 23. We see Jews looking for signs and wonders yet stumble at the cross. We see Greeks searching for wisdom and knowledge and yet finding what is the true wisdom of God. Foolishness. The Jews couldn't even begin to To conceive of their Messiah being rejected. They thought Messiah was going to come in great grandeur and glory, and he will a second time. But the first time he came was a humble servant who would die. The Greeks of Paul's day had trusted their own intelligence. (laughs) They can't believe in a rejected leader. They can't fathom someone rising from the dead, and so they reject those. And people today, you know, can fall in these categories as well. There are those who want their Christianity demonstrated. Show me power, show me health, show me wealth, show me your pocketbook, show me the blessings that come upon your lives. And if Christianity doesn't come in these type of things with a great blessing for me, I don't want it. There are those who say, Show me the mysteries. Let me know all the answers to philosophy. How is it that someone actually rises from the dead? What's going to happen in the future? I, I know people who all they want to do in the Bible is read Revelation. Just want to get in it for what's going to happen in the future. That's all they're in it for. Want to know all the mysteries. We want to figure it all out. They can't quite figure it all out. That's the way God has made the world. We can't quite figure it out. And verse 24 says, for us who haven't figured it out, we are called the called. Right? Those are the Christians, the one who God calls and says, you will be mine. Uh, both Jews and Greeks who maybe at one time were searching for signs, maybe at one time were searching for wisdom. Those are called that found in Christ Jesus to be the power of God. And God has done this specifically so that even God in his foolishness, what says in verse 25, if God is foolish, it's wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men Wisdom and power are both experienced in the cross of Christ for those who believe. Well, that's our message. It's a foolish-looking message, but it's the one that God is spreading in our world today. But that's not all that's foolish-looking in the ways of God. He also uses foolish-looking messengers. We get that in the remaining part of chapter 1. Consider verses um, 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brethren... Right? So consider how it is that you were saved. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are. Verse 29 is a key verse. We'll get back to it so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. These are the sovereign ways of God. Notice verse 26, we see God's calling of the Corinthians to salvation. Just consider who God chose. See, God chooses those who will be saved. That's what this verse says. In our experience, certainly we choose God, but fundamentally it's because God chooses us. That's what verse 30 is about, right? It's by His doing you're in Christ Jesus. We're in Christ because of what God did for us. Our, origin, our salvation originates in Him. It's God's working. And when He calls you, you'll come. But there are particular types of people that God calls into salvation. It's the point of verses 26 through 28. 26 describes them, Consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. When God chooses those who be in His church, He doesn't call the wise of this world, He doesn't call the strong of this world, He doesn't call the rich of this world... Who's in the church? It's those the world who the world would consider foolish and weak and ordinary. See, the church isn't filled with a bunch of really smart people. The church isn't filled with a bunch of really strong people. The church isn't filled with a bunch of really rich people. <laughs> on, the other, on the one hand, I mean, this is really quite easy to understand, right? Think about how it is that you enter the kingdom of God. How is it that that takes place? You come to the end of yourself. That's how you enter the Kingdom of God. You find out, I've got no hope in myself. You enter the Kingdom of God by realizing you're not smart enough to figure everything out on your own. You enter the Kingdom of God when you realize that you need help because you are weak. You enter the Kingdom of God when you realize that by way of worldly possessions, ultimately, they mean nothing to you. They can buy nothing before God. You come in poverty before God. That's why God is called. The weak. The weak. Foolish, the poor, to be rich in faith. That's who God calls. It's really interesting. When Jesus encountered these type of people, when Jesus encountered wise people, He rebuked them. When He encountered strong people, He rebuked them. When He encountered rich people, He rebuked them. Because that's not how you get into the kingdom of God. It's not those ways. God calls to different ways. I mean, Think about when He encountered the wise people. Matthew 22. These people were wise in their own eyes. Asked Jesus all these questions. Try to trip him up in what he said? He turned it back and showed himself how wise he was. In fact, where there were some wise people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum who had rejected him, Jesus prayed, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise and intelligent and you've revealed them to babes. Because, God, that's your plan. Matthew 11, 25. It was pleasing in your sight, is what Jesus said, because the gospel to wise people won't make sense. It's not the ways of God. When Jesus encountered those who trusted themselves, right? They were strong. Jesus told the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood. Oh, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I pay tithes of everything that I get. I fast twice a week. I'm not an unjust swindler, adulterer like this guy over here. And then this guy over here was so so depressed in his sin he didn't even lift up his eyes. To God and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner, as so he beat his chest. And and Jesus said, This one went down justified, not the other. See, so because it's not in your strength and your righteousness that you come before God. It's in your brokenness. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's weak beggars who will be justified in God's sight, and God chooses the humble of the world to exalt. Think about when Jesus encountered the rich of the present world. Right? You think about the rich young ruler. How did Jesus deal with him? He said, you're a rich man. You want to come follow me? You need to, she said, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come follow me, and then you'll have everlasting life. How'd that go? It didn't go. But Jesus was saying, you don't get into the kingdom by being rich. You get into the kingdom by being poor. When Zacchaeus, a rich man, came into the kingdom... He said, Lord, half my possessions I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone anything, I'll give back four times as much. And Jesus, you can almost sense that in Luke 19, was kind of giddy and happy. He said, Salvation has entered this house today. Not that he paid his way into the kingdom, but he realized how poor he was. And he held his his riches that he used to hold with an iron fist. He opened them up and said, God, they're yours. Use them as you will. That's how you need to come. Come as poor. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The way into the kingdom of God isn't through intelligence, giftedness, or worldly possessions. In fact, these things become hindrances. We are the smartest nations ever existed. Everybody's through public schools. We have the internet. We know everything today. If you want to find it out, just Google. You got it. We are the richest nation ever. The wealth that we have as a nation surpasses all nations forever. And perhaps we are more gifted today than any other nation. World records continue to be beaten. We have continued health techniques. How to, how to stay better. How to how to live longer. right? How to be stronger. How to be healthier. We're learning all these things, right? And it wasn't got up to America. It's not got much. Because these things can be hindrances. That's not the way into the kingdom of heaven. The way in is the foolish way, not the wise way. The way in is the weak way, not the strong way. The way in is the despised way. And that's the people that God has chosen. And the reason why God has chosen these people to be in is verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. See, a foolish person can't say that he finally figured God out. And I went through all my my wisdom and intelligence, read all these books, I got to God. It's never the testimony of a believer. The testimony of a believer is I just cried out to him. I said, help me, God. I was saved. I know sins forgiven that way. A weak person can't boast, I've finally become strong enough. I finally walked through all my righteous hoops. That's not how it works. A poor person can't boast that he's become rich and successful enough to impress God. Rather, he's, he's empty and poor said, God, i got nothing. And that's why Galatians 6.14 says that the only boast we as a church have is the cross of Christ. Our boast that we've come to know the Lord through the mighty cross. O oh, mighty cross, oh love so pure. Love held Him there. Such pain endured. The mighty cross is the tree of life to me. And Christ has become everything to us. Because God has been everything to us. That's what verse 30 is about. By His doing, you are in Christ. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We find our wisdom in Christ. We find our righteousness in Christ. In Christ, we've been sanctified. We've been redeemed through the precious blood of Christ. Everything in Christ is what we are. That's what we boast. That's why it ends here in verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's verse 29. God saves people in such a way that they can't boast before God. Verse 31 comes from Nehemiah 9. Listen to how Nehemiah 9 says it. I think Paul stole his material from Nehemiah 9. In fact, I'm, I'm sure it. He said, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things. See, it brings great pleasure to God. When those who don't have everything by way of the world's standards come to Him and find their sufficiency in Him. And you know what? These are the people He's called to be ambassadors to send His message out into the world. These are the kind of people that God wants to proclaim His message. Not angels, not rich people, not prominent people. He wants humble people who will go, poor people, to go out and speak to others and say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to forgiveness is through Him. See, God's ways aren't for flashy, good looking, talented, athletic, rich scholars to bring the message to a dying world. Rather, He's called you, He's called me to be light to the Gentiles with the saving message of Christ. And you might say this, Well, Steve, I'm not very smart. You might say, I'm not a good speaker. I don't have anything to offer God. If that's your excuse, I say, perfect. (laughs) Because that makes you qualified. Because you have no credentials. And that's the one that God brings. It's the one that God chooses to save and the one that God chooses to spread the word. Why? Because your only boast is in God. You have nothing else to boast in. God has called foolish-looking messengers to proclaim a foolish-sounding, foolish-looking message. At this point, you might say, "Well, how am I supposed to do this?" Well, good thing you asked, because Paul answers it in verses two through verses one through five of chapter two. How God uses a method. This is a God. This is a foolish-looking method, is what God uses. Paul says this: When I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superior speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now the method of the Apostle Paul is the paradigm of our method as well. The same way that Paul preached the gospel is the same way that we ought to preach the gospel as well. And we see three characteristics of this message. First of all, it's simple, verses 1 through 2. It's not, as he says, superiority of speech. It's not superiority of wisdom. It's a simple message, verse 2, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Simple. You want to talk to someone about Christ? What do you do? You say, believe in Jesus, the one who was crucified. You can have sins forgiven and enjoy Him forever, so follow Him. That's what you can say. In fact, uh, at that seminar, it was interesting that, um, that I went to this motivational seminar. At one point, they said, I want you to stand up and network. I want you to meet five people and tell them what, who you are what you do. <laughs> Easy for me. I shook hands with a gal next to me and she was some, I forget, telephone salesperson. I forget what she was. I said, I'm a pastor of a church and I have a, I have a great job. I get to proclaim Jesus Christ, Him crucified, that anyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Simple message right there. And she's like, oh, okay. She didn't want much of it. But it's a simple, single message. And then you can, you know, expand from it there. But you're looking for an easy message to say. Just say, hey, Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Believe in Him crucified and resurrected for sins. Now, what's really astonishing here in verses 1 and 2 is the historical context what was taking place in Corinth in those days. Today, we look up to the great athletes of our land right the guys who are the biggest and strongest can run the fastest or can hit that little white ball the furthest or with the greatest amount of touch those are the ones who are famous who get all the money or or the actors who who make us really feel like you you were a pirate in the caribbean those are the guys that we really lift up and exalt because of their abilities right they get millions of money highly held highly richly rewarded and that was a little bit like the days of Paul, but the days of Paul wasn't so much the athlete or the actor. It was the orator, maybe the actor, the orator, the one who could speak, move audiences with the words. Those who were rewarded with great fame, brought a lot of students to themselves, brought a lot of money with them. Those who could attract great multitudes, those who could who lead audiences to, to tears, and then to laughter, and then to joy, and then motivate them on. These were the ones that in Corinth were were held really high. And so when Paul comes to Corinth, of all places, he says, I didn't go like the society went. I wasn't like the rich athlete. I wasn't like the great actor. I determined, verse 2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He made a specific choice He resolved, I'm not gonna go the way the Corinthians go in their culture. I'm gonna go the way of the cross, a simple message preached. That's what I'm gonna do. Some is coming from verse 29 of chapter 1. So no one may boast before God. See, with Paul's intelligence, he was capable of wooing the crowds. He had a fabulous story to tell. He was a righteous Pharisee who persecuted the churches and then encountered Jesus Christ on the road. Whoa, did that rock his world. And then he changed and then he now became a preacher of righteousness. And, and he didn't shy away from those things, but he was very careful to make sure that his own life and intelligence didn't overshadow the life and death of Jesus Christ. It was his resolve in his heart. He'd be countercultural. He wouldn't use the methods of the day. The reason is simple because Paul didn't want people to be attracted to him. He wanted to have people attracted to Jesus. What Jesus accomplished on the cross, the implications he had for our lives. And so he specifically, we well, even get a sense here, maybe even he toned down his message that it might be simple. Yes. <laughs> Paul, tell us something else. I remember Adoniram Judson. I read the book, um, The Golden Shorts on the back there. When uh, he was off in Burma for like 30 years and he came back and it's a great testimony. of He came back. People wanted to hear Adoniram Judson, wanted to hear all the missionary stories and he refused to tell them. When he stood in front of a church body, he just told of Jesus Christ and crucified. He said, that's the best story to tell. All these others are nothing. That was a great example of doing what the Apostle Paul did. He had a great story to tell, but he didn't. He talked to others about, about Christ and crucified. So, when you talk to others about Christ, you don't need to know all the philosophical answers. You don't know all the, know all the intricacies of all the other world religions or cults. You don't need to know why the, the Bible, we believe it to be inerrant, or all the, the particulars about all the manuscripts and all that kind of things. Now, they're good to know and they help you maybe have some confidence in speaking more. But at the end of the day, you simply need to have a simple message, Jesus Christ and crucified. You simply need to tell others. Have God became a man, lived 2,000 years ago, living a sinless life, dying for our sins, that by faith in Him we can be forgiven and enjoy His pleasures forever. And He's wonderful to follow, even in the midst of difficulties. We rejoice at the great trials that we face. It's a simple message. That's all it was. And Paul specifically went simple rather than catering to the Corinthians. Second, it's a fearful message. Verse 3. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. How many of you are fearful of talking to others about Christ? Yeah, be honest. It's an intimidating, fearful thing. It intimidates me. Sometimes there are times where I have to share the gospel and my heart's going, boom, 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 you know, and my mouth gets dry. And um, that's me. And that's what I live for. I mean, this is my job. Doug, does your heart ever start pounding when you're doing machining like metal parts? Oh, machines, is metal parts. Oh. It doesn't work that way. But it works this way, that the gospel is a fearful message to bring. And, and even for Paul it was. I'm so encouraged by this verse. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You know, he was shaking in his boots as he spoke to people about Jesus. It wasn't second nature to him. It was difficult and to be sure, his circumstances were unique. He may have been fearing for his life, because God came to him at Corinth in Acts 18 and said, "Do not be afraid any longer." It's just direct, audible communication to Paul. "Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city." He said, "Don't be fearful." I'm going to protect you. Nobody's going to harm you because there's lots of people in the city who I'm in to eternal life and they need to hear the gospel so they will believe. I have many people in this city is what he said. The implication is they're not believing yet but when you come and preach to them they will believe. It gives boldness for evangelism. It doesn't kill it. Election doesn't kill evangelism. Election empowers evangelism because you know that God is working it will take effect. Now it's highly unlikely that any of you will be killed in prison for preaching the gospel. So you don't have that to fear. <laughs> but it still remains a fearful thing to confront others with their sins. You don't know how they respond. You might lose relationships. I know people I've lost relationships with because I've confronted them with their sin. of Christ. And you just might do that. And it's hard when people reject you for confronting them. But wouldn't it be nice if we had a promise like the Apostle Paul did? Don't fear. I've got many people in that city. I'll protect you. You'll be okay. Well, we do. The end of Matthew. Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here in the disciple-making activity, Jesus promised His disciples that He would be with them that same promise is for us today. Is that our disciple making activity, telling people of Jesus, God is with us. (laughs) And all authority, in fact, Jesus is with us. All authority has been given to him. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And the end of the age isn't there yet. It's still here and Jesus is still with us as he was with the Apostle Paul. You know, if you travel to a dangerous part of town, it's kind of nice to have a police escort, isn't it? Have someone alongside you, you know, if you're in a squad car going to, you know, whatever, the, the ghettos of the city. You're like, That's a great comfort in that, isn't there? Because they're not going to mess with the big boys, hopefully. When you share the gospel, you have a divine escort. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. <clears throat> and so I'd love to tell you this morning, don't be afraid. But you're always going to be afraid when speaking others about Christ. How it is. If Paul is afraid, you'll be afraid. But that's the method. It's a simple message, verse 1 and 2. It's a fearful message. And now, here in verse 4, it's a spiritual message. The idea here goes back to <clears throat> verse 1, but let's read verse 4. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. right When Paul came, verse 1, he didn't come with superior speech or with wisdom. He didn't come with great words of persuasion. He didn't come with a bold salesman who knew how to counter every answer that people might give. Rather, Paul contends when he was at Corinth he just spoke the saving word of the cross and let it work. That's how it works. We speak and God works. We speak and God works. In fact, it must be that way. Verse 14 of chapter 2 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. We speak, doesn't accept it. Because they're foolishness to him, right? That goes back to chapter 1. The natural man, right? That's the one who has not been enacted upon by the Spirit of God. And in fact, he cannot understand the words you're going to speak to him. He can't understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised or they're spiritually discerned or they're spiritually understood. And the idea here is that a man needs to be a spiritual man first until he understands what you're talking to him about. A natural man cannot understand because they're spiritually discerned. A natural man isn't a spiritual man. Thus, he has no ability to understand what's being said unless the Spirit of God would come upon him and give him a spiritual heart to hear and believe. It's how it works, right? We speak and God works because our message is a spiritual message. It's got to be impacted spiritually. Well, this morning we need to finish here in verse 5. This verse really brings a purpose behind Paul's methodology of why he preached a simple message, why he preached a fearful message and a spiritual message. It's so that, verse 5, and this is so key, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. <clears throat> you know, we need to be careful in the things that we do in telling others about Christ. We need to make sure that, our, that should we persuade them to follow Christ, that it's not based upon us. Suppose you come away from a, an opportunity where you've had to, to share something with someone and said, I answered all their questions. They had all these questions about philosophy and life and I answered them all and I solved all of his problems. All of his things and showed him how Christ is there and he, he prayed to accept Jesus because I answered all his questions. It's Probably not a good sign because what's going to happen? Verse 5. His faith might be on your wisdom which got all the answers. And what happens when somebody else comes and shows how foolish maybe your answers were? Oh, hmm. And they'd be susceptible then to following that person's wisdom because they're fundamentally following wisdom of men rather than following the wisdom of God. Or you might say this, the church service was so emotionally powerful. The music and the songs touched my heart. The lights were dimmed at the right moment. The preacher was witty, intelligent, articulate, downright convincing. I'm so glad I believe this is so good. There's a danger there. Someone comes to believe in the emotional experience they have. What happens the next day when the emotions aren't there? What happens in future days when they have an even more emotional experience? (laughs) But Paul said, no, no, no. Your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So Paul specifically chose a method that would attract people to the message and not himself. I want to close with one, one more illustration. And this is kind of, this is kind of radical. and um, <clears throat> But I'm showing hyperbole in some sense to maybe make a point. I, I remember um, <clears throat> going to Walt Disneyland and um, experiencing, um, what's it called? Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I'm Is that what it was, I think? You know, you put your glasses on. How many of you have been to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? <clears throat> put these 3D glasses on and, and you look and see and these things are coming out at you and you know the, the mice are running on the floor and so you're like, oh, the mice are there and then you get a spit of water on your face and it kind of has this whole experience. Well, I thought about this. What, what if we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to create a, a special effects theater? Which, by the way, they have at the Creation Museum. What's your name again? Larry. He works at the Creation Museum. Some of us girls are going to be going there and so we got some inside track there. But he says they have a special effects um, Theater. I'm going to take this to another level. The special effects. I'm actually put on 3D glasses, and this is called the Crucifixion Experience. You see Jesus walking up the hill of Calvary in the theater. You get this cool breath of air, like you're walking with Jesus up to Calvary. And then with your the 3D glasses on, the cross comes out and you focus in upon His hands being nailed to the cross. And when, when the soldier nails something across, blood splatters, and kind of water gets on your face because you're, you're experiencing the crucifixion in right hands. The cross is lifted into his hole into the ground, and goes, thump," And your seat kind of jumps a little bit because you're experiencing the crucifixion. Darkness comes upon the land. Clouds came. We don't know how the darkness came, but you know maybe there was a little bit of a drizzle. You know you start feeling some rain coming from above. When Jesus dies, you feel the earth shake. You're transported quickly to the temple. You see the, 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 the veil of the temple split in two and whoosh, you kind of feel a, a nice breeze. You see the tombs open and you see these people walking among the audience who are now risen from the dead. And then you're taking the tomb where Jesus lay and the theater goes perfectly dark, perfectly still. And they've given you these headphones, which you know, I've seen advertised for on airplanes that are like sound deafening. You know, whatever comes in, they, they just, so it's perfectly silent. And dark for what seems like eternity, actually it seems like two or three days, and uh, it's really dark. And then all of a sudden, boom! A bright light as the stone rolls away, and you see this bright light. And all of a sudden, now you're you're it's like you're Jesus, and you feel yourself walking up out of the tomb, and and then you encounter the women in the garden. I see Mary weeping, and she says, "Woman, why are you weeping?" It's almost like you're saying this, Women, why are you weeping?" He says, "Oh, they've taken him to be the gardener. They've taken him away." And then when you say being Jesus, Rabboni. She gives you a big hug and around your seat, you know, kind of scraps, you know, the seatbelt kind of gets tighter and you kind of feel like Mary is around you and then, then you tell her, no, let go. Let go. Stop cleaning to me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go and tell your disciples, I'll meet them in Galilee. And soon you find yourself walking on the road to Emmaus with these disciples. And it's like you're Jesus and talking to them. And and then even there, the full Gospel comes out, explaining from all the Scriptures, from Moses and the prophets, how it was necessary for Christ to suffer and die. After this powerful presentation, then people are invited to pray a sinner's prayer. As they leave, they say, okay, which door? Did you pray that prayer or not? If we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and found out that we had... uh, an astonishing rate of evangelism. Ninety percent of the people were saved. Would it be a good thing? Maybe. Maybe not. Because you might be gaining converts through the wisdom of this multimedia experience, and people would be attracted to this experience they had rather than the message of the cross of Christ. Now, it might be that the truth works powerfully in the people, and they'd be okay. But it might just be that people come out of the theater saying, wow, that was an amazing presentation. It was a good experience for me. Those people that put together did a great job and that presentation convinced me to believe. It's kind of like, you know what, maybe, maybe you've missed it there a little bit. People say this, whether they've done it's possible they've trusted in the ingenuity of men as they've experienced Jesus through technology. But that's not the way Paul did ministry. Let's debate later whether Paul would have done ministry that way, because he wants verse 5 faith of people to rest, not on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Dia Carson says these verses, verses 1 through 5, don't prohibit diligent preparation, passion, clear articulation, and persuasive presentation. Rather, they warn against any method that leads people to say, What a marvelous preacher! rather than what a marvelous Savior. Well, Paul used a foolish-looking method. He went to Corinth, preached a simple message. He spoke with much fear and trembling. He did little by persuasive words to manipulate those in Corinth of believing. The only convincing thing that was taking place in Corinth was the Spirit of God upon them, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. And the danger of the theater idea is that those who experience these things might be susceptible to the next great experience, or the next convincing thing that comes down the line and the Spirit of God really working in them. But Paul wanted to make sure that people encountered a living God through His Word, not through His great intellectual or speaking ability. They'd bring attention to Himself. You know, these things might be crazy in our ears, but it's God's method, and His ways are not our ways. God used a foolish message, the word of the cross, spoken by foolish-looking messengers, unintelligent, weak, and despised people who follow, follow a foolish-looking method, one which produces proclaims a simple truth to others without any overt display of human ingenuity. That's how God does it. That's his ways. I think we need to follow his ways. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would make us bold for the gospel of Christ. Make us bold to be out and proclaim Jesus to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family. Lord, we're not restricted by these things, but these are the things that give us a way how to do it. I pray we'd realize we have a foolish-looking message so we aren't surprised when people reject it. I pray we'd realize that we're foolish-looking messengers. Lord, not many of us are wise or noble. I pray that we would realize that we have a foolish-looking method that simply talks to people and tells them and trusts the Spirit of God to work in their hearts. And, Lord, I would pray you'd encourage us here at Rock Valley Bible Church with converts who would hear the message and be transformed by it and be changed, Lord, for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.